0: I'm going to say this ahead of time. This is, it I feels like, last week I talked about, I don't know if I did in this service, but I talked about having a freeze-dried sermon where I just, you just sort of condensed it down to a very distilled point. Um, that was true last week. It's more true this week. Uh, I feel like I, here this morning, <clears throat> uh, this is, I think, one of the thickest uh, messages I've ever preached. Uh, in terms of just distilling down... Uh, some of the, I think, most profound, deep, perhaps for us Westerners, difficult concepts in all of the Word of God. So I'm going to ask that you, I'm going to challenge you to really have your thinking caps on, Uh, because this won't necessarily be real easy, but I can promise you that it will pay off. Uh, so this is a teaching time, and we're, we're setting up uh, our celebration of, of communion here this morning. I'm going to read uh, more scripture than we usually read. Uh, I'm going to read 18 verses out of Hebrews 10, and then another 5 out of Luke 22. The law, starting with verse 1. The law, the author says, now remember he's arguing, he's, he's challenging these believers Who are Jewish believers, but they're thinking about going back to their Judaism. He's trying to confront them and to get them not to do that. And one of the ways that he's doing it, this is the theme that we're looking at in Hebrews 8 through 10, is he's showing them how the covenant that they are now part of is superior to the covenant of the Old Testament. So that's the background uh, out of which he's speaking here in Hebrews chapter 10. The law, he says, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. It's that shadow reality. Uh, the, the, The sanctuary of the Old Covenant we saw is a shadowy sanctuary. It points towards the reality, but it's not itself the reality. So also the law, the covenant, the Old Covenant, was there to point towards something else. It was the shadow that points to the reality. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it, the law, can never by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, Make perfect those who draw near in worship. We've said before that the the goal of God is to have a perfect relationship with His people that replicates, it mirrors, the relationship that He is throughout eternity. The triune God wants a triune relationship with us, us to have a triune relationship with Him, us to have a triune uh, perfect relationship with ourselves, and therefore us to have a perfect triune relationship with others. That's the goal of creation. The law couldn't do that. It couldn't bring about perfection. If it could, he says in verse 2, if it could bring about perfection, would they not have stopped being offered? Why, the very fact that, it, that they offered these sacrifices year after year shows that they were imperfect. For the worshipers would not have, uh, would not have been cleansed once for all, and would, no, and would no longer have felt, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Because, listen to this, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These animal sacrifices of the Old Testament reminded them, year after year, of the consequences of covenant breaking, but it did not restore the covenant that sin introduces into our relationship with God. It didn't wash away sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ was to be the new sacrifice. So the Lord says, I'm not going to be going out doing sacrifices. I'm going to be the sacrifice. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you are not pleased. And then I said, Here am I. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking as the incarnate man and therefore addressing the Father as his God because he is a perfect man. And he's come to do the will of the Father. Verse 8. First he said, "Sacrifices and offerings, bur- sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did, did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the, the law required them to be made. But then he said, "Here am I, I have come to do your will." He sets aside the first in order to establish the second. And what he's saying there is this: I've come by setting aside fulfilling what the shadowy sacrifices of the Old Testament were about, he fulfilled the will of God. And the will of God is to have that perfect relationship with us. So the author is saying he sets aside the first in order to do the second. He sets aside the sacrifices in order to do the will of God. And the will of God is that his body would be the sacrifice once and for all that would bring about the perfect relationship that we have with the Father. All right. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Everyone say amen. Amen. Day after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for all sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That is to say he sat down in the glory of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. There, as always, when the New Testament authors think about the death of Jesus Christ, they think about the defeat of Satan and the principalities and powers and demons. So he throws that in in there. The sacrifice not only makes us perfect, it defeats the principalities and powers. Read Colossians 2, 14 and 15 for a commentary on that. Told you this was going to be thick. Since that time, yada, yada, okay, because, verse 14... By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. Everybody say, perfect forever. Perfect forever. Look at that. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Woo! Okay, so because of the sacrifice, you're made perfect, and yet you are being made holy. Now, if you're already perfect, how are you made holy? How are you being made holy? And here you find the whole the New Testament theology of justification and sanctification. You are made holy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Talk about that in a little bit longer a little bit later. But our life is in the process of manifesting the perfection that God has already given to us by his grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you that. Verse 15 the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this saying about this first he says this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. That's the, he puts the Holy Spirit within us. We talked about that last week. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. It is done. It is done. It is done. It is done. Mm. Okay, oh yeah, I want to read Luke, Luke 22. You don't have to turn there. But the, but the Lord says this, starting in, in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I, I, I suffer. The last supper was held on, on Passover, and this was the time when the Jews remembered their exodus out of Egypt. When the when the blood of the lamb was put on the doorposts and the, the angel of death passed over, all who were covered by the blood, think about it, uh, and they would remember that. And so here we're having a new uh, a new version, as it were, of the Passover being given. He says, for I tell you, I will need not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And I'd never noticed this before. The Lord, is. it's it sounds, I don't know how little it takes this, but he's, he's saying, I'm not going to, I'm going on a fast until we we can eat again uh, when the kingdom of God comes. I'm not going to make a doctrine out of that, but I'm just thinking out loud. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I'm not going to eat and drink until I can do it with my bride in the kingdom. And he took the bread and gave thanks, and he broke it in two and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant. For those of you who have been with us for the last six weeks, that that should have some extra meaning now. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Amen. Pray with me here. Father, uh, it just feels this morning uh, that, uh, God, your, your word is so rich, so profound, so breathtaking in its, uh, in its endless wisdom, Lord. And this morning, God, it feels like we're going to be touching on one of the deepest jewels, one of the most precious jewels, one of the, one of the most mysterious jewels of the entire word of God. And Lord, what I am really so acutely aware of is that words can't capture it. Our thoughts can't capture it. There's no way we really can comprehend it. Uh, Lord, and yet it is your desire that we move further and further into the depth of your word. And so, Lord, this morning we're praying that uh, as the word of God goes forward, Lord, that you'd anoint it with your power and your authority. Use, Lord God, the words, however feeble and inept they may be, Use them, Lord God, as like kingdom uh, lasers that will uh, uh, just go into our hearts and melt away the dross that is there and heal the wounds that are there. Restore us and revive us from the deadness that maybe is there. Give us understanding, profound understanding, Lord, of, uh, of, of who you are and what you came to do and why you died. Well, God, not just to inform our heads, but Lord, to transform our hearts. Be with us, we pray in your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, here's a little review. What we've seen the last six, seven weeks, however long we've been going on this, is we've been looking at the nature of covenant as a way of understanding Hebrews 8 through 10. It's one of the two themes that is woven throughout these two very profound chapters. Um, Covenants in the ancient world and in the biblical world were, had the, these uh, five or six characteristics. We've talked about them a number of times. First of all, there was an oath that was made, a vow was made, a pledge was made. Before God and before other witnesses, a pledge was made. Then they would cut the covenant in two. I mean, they'd cut an animal in two uh, and, and lay it on the ground. And uh, while making the, these, these, this vow, they'd walk between the, the, the dismembered animal. They'd walk through the blood of the animal. Uh, the very, this is the core of covenant. Uh, the very phrase, to make a covenant, literally means to cut a covenant. And what they're saying is, if I break covenant with you, then let it be to me as it is to this animal. Let me be torn asunder. Let me be, let, let me be ripped, ripped apart. I'm laying my life on the line in terms of this covenant. So they made an oath. They walked between the bloody parts of this uh, slain animal then there was an, a, a, an exchange, an identification where they'd exchange armor or, or, or clothing, uh, the tribal coat, uh, whatever. And it was a way of saying, insofar as our covenant stipulates, our lives are no longer our own. But my life now intersects with your life and your life intersects with my life. There's a new us, a new reality created here. We are no longer our own. And then they'd um, celebrate it. They'd have some kind of a a celebration that would uh, celebrate the terms of the the covenant, uh, a meal, a dance, and and, and whatnot. And then they'd have a memorial. Either an object was built or a deed would be repeatedly done that would remind them of the terms of their covenant, of uh, of the faithfulness uh, of, of the partner and of their call to be faithful in relationship to that partner. The Old Testament covenant was like this. And the Old Testament covenant we saw last week was, was good. It was holy, it was just, but it was not complete. It was what was needed for the people at that time as a way of, of laying some foundational principles for what was to come, but it was not in and of itself complete for three reasons. Number one. It didn't bring about the level of identification that God wanted with his people. The goal of creation, as I've already said, is for God to have a perfect, unbroken relationship with his people that reflects the love that he is. He wants a creation that mirrors his triune love. The Old Testament did not bring about that kind of relationship. It didn't bring about the intimacy uh, that, that, that God is aiming at in creation. One of the reasons it didn't do this, and this is the second inadequacy of uh, this, the, the Old Covenant, is that it didn't empower the people to keep covenant. They kept on breaking covenant. And this is a real problem for an all-holy God who cannot deny himself and be disingenuous with his own character. So there, it didn't empower people. It could tell them what covenant was to be, the importance of keeping covenant, but it didn't change their heart to make them and empower them to walk in covenant. And the third inadequacy, and this is major, is it didn't, allow, it didn't make provision for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, The the blood of the bulls and the goats, the author says, did not wash away sin. They were there as part of the covenant, because every covenant has the blood. Every covenant has the, the, the animal reminder of the consequences of breaking covenant. So the bulls and the goats and whatever, they were there, and they were slain, but they did not literally wash away sin. We began to see last week, and this is where we're at in our study, how the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. How it is the reality of the, the, the shadow of the Old Testament. It, it, it brings to pass all that the Old Testament was, was looking forward to. And it does it by, in its own distinct, unique, and beautiful way, capturing all the elements of covenant that we, we've talked about, those six, uh, those six elements of, of covenant. Last week, we looked at the vow of the New Testament. We enter into a covenantal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ when we take the covenantal pledge. And this is why the Bible puts such an emphasis on confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It has no conception of a private faith that no one sees and no one hears about. It's a public declaration. I confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And in, in covenantal terms, the terms of scripture, this is not simply a report about what you happen to believe intellectually. Yeah, I think I believe in Jesus Christ is Lord. No, it's if you're entering into the covenant, and this is what salvation is about, it is a pledge. Uh, you are making an oath. You are saying, I confess that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. These are the terms of the covenant. He is Lord, which means I am his disciple. And I pledge to make him Lord, to live as though he is Lord. And I pledge, therefore, to live as his disciple. It's all based, as all covenants are, on trust and trustworthiness. I trust the Lord to be the loving Lord that he says he is, and I will pledge to walk faithful before the Lord in terms of this covenant. The New Testament adds two new things to the very concept of vow that we talked about last week. We sort of got to the second part, and I think I might pick it up again at a later time. But the two new things that the New Testament brings is, number one, it uh, 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 it brings a perfect unambiguous revelation of the Lord that we're entering into covenant with, and it does it by the Lord Jesus Christ becoming incarnate. This is one of the reasons why he became a man. In the person of Jesus Christ, you see unequivocally, with perfect clarity, the character of the God that we're called to be married to. So he comes and gives this revelation of who God is. If you see me, you see the Father. And so for all covenant partners of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's got to be your commitment that you take your cue about who God is from the Lord Jesus Christ, and you take your cue about who you are from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to say, you're Lord. You define you, and you define me. Not mom, dad, or past experience, or whatever. So, the Lord brings a, uh, a, a perfect revelation of who God is, and that's the first new part of the new covenant. The second new thing is this. God solves the problem of how to how to have covenant covenant breakers walk now in covenant relationship with him because his own character comes and dwells within us and that's the infilling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was the Holy Spirit that drew us to have faith in him in the first place and then he fills us with his own spirit, with his character to empower us to walk in covenant. So that was the new element of the vow. This is how the New Testament vow is made. This morning now for the next 20 minutes or so, Uh, uh, I I, I want to talk about the new cut of the new covenant, the new identification of the new covenant, and then close by talking about the new memorial of the new covenant. Those three things. It's going to be dense. Um, So put on your thinking caps. First of all, let's talk about the new cut of the new covenant. This is so important for us to understand. and I think the majority of believers... Don't, don't understand it. And that's why, I, Lord, Holy Spirit, bring illumination to all of this. In the Old Testament, as I said, the, animals were sat, the cut of the covenant between us and God had to do with animals. And you look at the book of Leviticus, and you'll see that they had different animals for different kinds of sins, different sacrifices that were made for different kinds of sin. If you read the book of Leviticus without an understanding of covenant, it will strike you, and some commentators who don't understand a covenant say this, that it will strike you as kind of grotesque, maybe barbaric, uh, primitive. It looks like you got a bloodthirsty god. Uh, you know, he you know, rip apart a pigeon for me. You know, uh, slay, slay! I want me some bulls. You know, slay me some bulls. And it talks about how the the uh, odor from the sacrifices was was a sweet smelling savor unto the Lord. Uh, I remember when when my wife just got saved. Um, uh, you know, I was discipling her. Uh, this is way before we were married, but I saw a mission field here, so I would, you know, kind (laughs) of, my motivation was Pierre. Uh, And so I was helping, and she had a question, you know, uh, why did God, you know, want those sacrifices in the Old Testament? And I really didn't know, but I said something that was smooth. Um, and, and, And she said, I just thought it was because he liked the smell of them she read the Bible so literally, and it says that they are a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. And so she really thought that God was like, man, I like me some burned goat, you know. Mm-mm, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you can get that impression. If you don't understand covenant, you go back to the and you wonder, what is all this? You shall rip the pigeon's heads thrice and pop it and then sprinkle it over yourself. They're always sprinkling the blood all over the place. But see, if you understand the nature of covenant, all covenants are made in blood. And it's the reminder of the covenant. You look at this animal and you say, whoa, I don't want to be like this animal. And, uh, and this is the consequence of living without integrity in the covenant that you have made. And this was, as the author of Hebrews says, a perpetual reminder of the consequences of sin. But it did not itself forgive sin. And this is the problem that the author of Hebrews is addressing. It didn't literally restore relationship. And when you're dealing with an all-holy God, any sin is a major obstacle to having a relationship with him. So the question is this. How does God have, have covenant with people who do not keep covenant without denying his own integrity? You see, this is the question. He doesn't want us to become as this animal. He loves us. So how does God restore relationship? The Old Testament doesn't answer that question. The New Testament does. And what it says is, is just, I think, breathtaking. Breathtaking. This is so condensed, so, so thick, I wrote it out. I don't usually write out my sermons, but I didn't want to trust the, the neurological activity of my mind at the moment to get it right. So let me read this with, with commentary um, and, and, and listen carefully. Holy Spirit, illuminate. The way God establishes covenant with sinners in the New Testament who break covenant, and all of us have, Without denying his own holy integrity is by becoming one of the humans he wants to keep covenant with. He makes him the new head of the human race. This is why Jesus is called the new Adam. Literally, God started from scratch with the human race with the person of Jesus Christ. It was kind of like the flood when he started over again. Well, he starts over again with radical grace. This time, Jesus is the head of the new human race. Ephesians 2 calls us the new human race. So he becomes one of the people that he wants to keep covenant with. He makes him the new head of the human race. This new head, Jesus Christ, keeps perfect covenant with the Father on our behalf. He lives a perfect covenant and then pays the price for all who don't keep covenant with God, which is to say, for everyone, because none of us keeps covenant with God. As our representative, He becomes our righteousness, our right-relatedness with God, and then becomes our curse in order to share this righteousness with us. Let me put it this way. We deserve to become as the butchered covenantal animal, the animal that is slain, the animal, the parts between which you walk when you make a covenant. We deserve to become as the butchered animal, for we have, in fact, broken covenant with God. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Which is to say, the wages of covenant-breaking is death. Let it be to me as it is to this animal, that's the wages of breaking covenant. All of us have done it. How does God now have relationship with people who deserve death? Christ, as the new head of the human race, lives a sinless life on our behalf, and then becomes the butchered animal, as it were, on our behalf. This is why the ripped-apart animals in the book of Leviticus all point to Jesus. This is what happened to Jesus. Let me say it like this. Holy Spirit, illuminate. God not only upholds his part of the covenant, he upholds our part of the covenant in the person of Jesus Christ. And he not only upholds our part of the covenant, he pays the price for our not upholding our part of the covenant. Let me say it again. Holy Spirit, illuminate. God not only upholds his part of the covenant, he upholds our part of the covenant by becoming one of us as the new head of the human race. And he not only upholds our part of the covenant, he pays the price for our not upholding our part of the covenant. Praise God. The covenant that God makes with us then is one that no longer says, the covenant that God makes with us is one, tune in here, The covenant that God makes with us is no longer one that says, if you break covenant, you shall be as this dismembered animal. It no longer says that. This is the radical new twist of the radical new covenant. Rather, the Lord says, since you already have broken covenant, I have become as this animal. And that now becomes the new term of the new covenant. Instead of walking between animal parts with the threat of death on us, if we break covenant, we walk with the Father between the body parts of Jesus Christ, who is God himself, with the promise of life towards us, despite the fact that we break covenant. i want to say that again. Instead of walking between the animal parts with the threat of death on us, if we break covenant... We walk with the Father, holding the Father's hand, making our profession of faith, with the promise of life on us, despite the fact that we do break covenant. And this now becomes the center of the new covenant, saying yes to the dismembered, if you will, body parts of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the New Testament is so big and emphatic on the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant, what does this mean? Most believers, I don't think, really grasp it. The blood of the covenant is the blood of the dismembered body parts of Jesus. Now think animal stuff here uh, of the old covenant because this is how a Jew would think about it. The blood of the covenant is the blood that you walk in as you're making the covenant with the Father. This is the new covenant. God Almighty pays, he keeps our end of the covenant And he pays the price for our not keeping our end of the covenant. He becomes the animal, the lamb, as the Bible says, that was sacrificed from the foundation of the world, praise God. The lamb of God slain on our behalf. So the Bible is full of blood. And it's gory, but it's beautiful in its gore if you understand what the gore is for. There are some liberal theologians and liberal churches that say we got to take all this talk about blood out of the Bible. Got to take all the blood. I sat under, under teachings like this when I was going to liberal schools. You know, th- this, uh, this blood stuff, it just doesn't relate to 20th century sophisticated people. And we got to take the blood out of our hymns. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Gross. We don't want to talk about that. And, and, and we want to take the blood out of our liturgies and, and all of that kind of stuff. But they don't understand covenant. You can't have covenant without blood. You can't have covenant without laying your life on your, on, on, down the line. You can't have covenant without consequences. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ alone that establishes our covenant with the Father, praise God. You can take, you can, liberals try to take the blood out of the covenant, but I want to roll in it, praise God. I, I, I want it to be all over me. Because it's the blood that makes us whole, amen? It's the blood that sets us right with God. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that restores us with the Father. It's the blood of Jesus Christ and nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away. Bathe me in the blood. It's as, it is as gory as it is beautiful. and It is beautiful because it's gory. Bathe me in the blood. You know, when you walk between, this is what we do in communion, um, the body that is broken for the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, the body that is the Lord Jesus Christ, he breaks, he breaks the bread. This is what we're celebrating here this morning. And in Old Testament terms, he says, this is my body, this is like the animal. You put one part here, and you put one part here, and there's blood all over the place. And you grab the covenant, uh, the person that you're making covenant with, and you walk between the body parts, and you say, "Let it be to me as it is to this animal." If I break covenant with you, but now what the Lord, what we're saying what the Lord invites us to say is this: He says, "Since you have broken covenant, I have become the body parts." And now instead of having the threat of death, we have the promise of life, despite the fact that we were the ones who deserved that, praise God. And we walk between the body, we walk in, we're in Christ, we walk in the blood of Jesus Christ. But praise God, we don't just get our toes wet with the blood. You know, a little bit of, of, of messiness right there as a reminder, but we walk through the Red Sea, praise God. We are covered, praise God, by the blood, washed by the blood, made pure by the blood. As far as the east is from the west, our sins have been cast from us and it's because of the blood. He says here in Hebrews 10 that he will remember our sins no more. Why? It's because of the blood. The blood of Jesus Christ alone restores that. It's because of the blood that we can, we, we can be blameless before God and spotless before God and pure before God. A bride, the Bible says, that ravishes the heart of God. Why? Because we're such nice people? No, it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ, hallelujah, that sets us right with God. We're filled with the Spirit because of the blood. We're empowered by God because of the blood, filled with his joy, filled with his life, filled with his peace because of the blood. Some may try to take the blood out, but I want to roll in it. I want to bathe in it. I want it to be my very being, praise God, because this, this is the one thing alone which now restores and keeps the covenant that we have with the Father. Praise God. Praise God, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that does it, and it does it all. The Bible says here in Hebrews 10 that we are perfected forever. Perfected forever. How is that? How are we perfected forever? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. We're perfected. Not slightly improved. Uh, not, you know, making progress. Uh, we are that. That's how we become holy. But, but we are perfected ahead of time. How? Not by just tweaking us a little bit here and there. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says we're perfected forever. Huh. Forever. Not, not, not the annual once a year kind of let's go through the thing we got to restore it and whatever. But once and for all, he was torn asunder, like the, the curtain in, 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 in the Bible that, in, in the temple that was rent to when Jesus died, torn asunder, divided apart. His body was pierced on our behalf. and that is what restores our relationship with the Father. And this is why the New Covenant, this is why the New Covenant brings about a perfect identification that God wants with His people. Here, this is what God's aiming at in all of creation, a perfect relationship with his people that reflects who he is. And it's because of the blood that it happens. God, you know, whenever you love somebody, you love them as a package. Every married couple here should say amen to this. You, you, you marry the package, don't you? And there's things about there that you really like a lot, and there's things that you don't like a lot. And, but to love them is to enter into their life. Now, every problem they have is your problem. And okay? this is the nature of covenant. Every problem you have is their problem. And it is the power of love that loves the person in the midst of the problems that begins to help them out of those problems. This is, this is the, what ought to be, in God's design, the health-bringing quality to marriage. When you're loved as you are, you become more than you are. Love frees us from a multitude of sins, the Bible says. Well, that works in marriage because it's built into the nature of the cosmos, because it's built into the nature of creation. When Jesus Christ identifies with us, he identifies with us in our scumminess. He takes upon himself. This is how the new covenant fulfills the old covenant. He enters into, he enters into all of our judgment. We stood in judgment. We should be as it is to this animal. We were in sin. We were in degradation. We were destined for hell. Jesus Christ enters into that. And this is the kind of covenant that he makes. He says, uh, You know, our lives will be intertwined. What is yours is mine. What is mine is yours. And what is yours is rebellion, judgment, death, damnation. I will take it upon myself and suffer the consequences for it in order that you can now partake in what I'm about. Our lives will intersect. So the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that God made him who knew no sin, who did not deserve this, God made him to be sin. He didn't make him guilty of sin, but he suffered the consequences of sin. He became the sin sacrifice. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Praise God. This is identification. The Lord offers us this. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. This is the covenant. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. Will you enter into this with me? Will you give me all that you are, and I'll give you all that I am? What you are is judgment, death, damnation, and rebellion. I'll take it, and I'll suffer the consequences for that. Why? So that you can take all that I am. And so now, because of what the Lord has done, because of the blood, we now inherit... Everything he is by nature, we are given by grace. His love is now towards us. His joy is towards us. His peace is in us. The reconciliation is there. The relationship that Jesus Christ has with the Father, we now inherit because he's the new head of the human race. Everyone who says yes to that. In the same way that the judgment that Adam procured as the head of the human race was passed on because we all said yes to it, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, we inherited that by saying yes to Adam. Now we inherit the perfect relationship that Jesus Christ has with the Father by saying yes to it. See, this is why the Bible calls us a new human race. It's a new head, it's a new beginning. We inherit that. And this produces what God's aiming at in creation. He wants our relationship with Him to reflect His relationship with Himself Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And now, because of what Jesus did, the Bible says we are in Christ. Like we were in Adam, we're now in Christ. We're in this new perfect relationship so that the Father in loving the Son loves us. Same love. Mirrored in a new way. It's not a separate love over here. We are loved with this morning as you sit here. If you have said yes to this, you've made a covenantal uh, pledge with this, you are loved with an... God loves everybody. But now there's this uh, perfect replication of the triune love of God towards you when you say yes to this Because he looks upon you as Jesus Christ. With the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you are in Jesus Christ. And the love that the Son has for the Father is by the power of the Spirit now put within us. If you know who you are in Christ, if you know your new nature, if you know what God has done, and none of us do perfectly. This is why we're in the process of being made holy. But what is, in fact, your new nature is this. You have a love for God that is perfect, that is undying. It is the love of the Son for the Father, and you are loved as the Son by the Father. This is why Jesus prays. This is, this is, this is dense here, folks. John 17, Father, I pray that they may be one in us, even as we are one. Same love. We are, as it were, caught up in the God's own triune love. We're caught up in God's own triune love. The love of the Father, of the Son, and the power of the Spirit is now turned towards us. Or think of it like this. The covenantal fidelity that is God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. Steve, you're tracking with me here, aren't you? I know you are, okay. The, 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 the covenantal love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is now played out in a new way. It is the same covenant, but now it's the covenant of the Father for the Son, but in a way that includes us. And it's the perfect relationship of the Father for the Son, but in a way that includes us. And it's the union of the Father and the Son and the power of the Spirit, but now indwelling in us. I got the silliest analogy I've ever had in my life, but it works. Last night as I was praying, God gave me this picture of a popsicle stick in a river, being carried along with a current. And then it got caught in one of these, uh, a vortex, uh, a swirl. And And the popsicle stick was just going around and around in a swirl. And the Lord, I just felt, I knew instinctively what the picture was about. We are the popsicle stick, folks. This is the church. This is his bride. And we get caught up in the swirl of God's unbroken, perfect, holy, covenantal love. He now, as, as he loves himself, he now swirls us into it. We never become God, and it wouldn't be beautiful if we were, because it's our otherness from God that makes this whole covenant arrangement perfect, and it reflects the infinite love of God but we are now loved with the love that God is praise God it's played out towards us it's played out in us it's played out through us and this is the goal of, of the whole creation a new identification of God with his people as close as two can get and it, it now happens between us and God this is perfect intimacy bringing us a new identity because of that the new cut leads to a new identification all that is ours becomes his, bam. All that is his becomes ours. And this leads to a new memorial. And this is the final point I want to make this morning. The memorial of the Old Testament was um, the Passover. When the Jews would remember the exodus out of Egypt, when they were in bondage for 400 years, and they were told to take a spotless lamb. How profound. See, how can anyone say that there's not one author behind the Word of God? Uh, this thing, you know, one of the ways that I know that the Bible is the Word of God it got a lot of reasons. One of the ways is that no human being could possibly think up this, folks. This this goes beyond anything that the human mind and imagination is capable of. In fact, it goes against most of the things that the human mind and imagination would ever think of. It is beautiful in the Old Testament. They took this spotless lamb and they slayed it. What? It was gory. But it was beautiful because it's gory. And they sprinkled it over the doorposts, the entrance to their dwelling. And uh, when the angel of death passed over, he passed, he passed by all the, all the houses that were covered by the perfect blood, by the unblemished blood. And when they came out of Israel, they were given this as the memorial, the, the reminder. Do this in remembrance of me. They'd look back to the sacrifice that was made that freed them from Egypt, and they looked forward to the promised land that they were going into. And it was because of the blood... That they could get out of Egypt and move into the Promised Land. Jesus gives us a, new, a, a radically new interpretation of this in the Last Supper. When he is the lamb that is slain, praise God. This is why it's called the Lamb of God. He's the lamb that is God himself. He's the lamb that God himself provides. And we celebrate this as a reminder of our freedom. Not freedom out of uh, earthly bondage. Not freedom out of Egypt, but we are freed from death, eternal death. We're freed from hell. We're freed from damnation. We're freed from the devil, praise God, because of what Jesus Christ did. And we come out of that Egypt, that bondage that held us in place because of the blood, and we look forward to the time when we enter into Canaan. Uh, It's not an earthly promised land that the Lord gives us to remember when we take communion. It's the eternal promised land, praise God. When he, and he does this in the Last Supper, when he shall sit down with us. And he says, you know, this is a reminder of the meal that we're going to have when this whole thing is fulfilled. Uh, And I'm not going to eat or drink until it is fulfilled. Uh, I don't want to eat alone. I want my bride to be there. That's how I take what he's saying here. I don't know how how to literally take that. But but, uh, he's saying, and I'm going to go on a fast until my bride is complete and we sit down and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. It will be the ultimate Passover as, as we here celebrate what we were passed over with, praise God, how we were passed over with, what we were freed from, what we are freed for. And here in the kingdom of God, we throughout eternity partake in the ecstatic, unsurpassable love that God is. This morning, as the people who are going to be doing communion come forward, I want us to think about this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He became the butchered animal. The one human being who didn't deserve it became it, so that all who didn't deserve it could have it. And in communion, I want us to just chew on this nugget from the Word of God. How our covenant was made. Think about it. How the covenant was made. And that tells you who God is. Remember, use this to remember, who God is, the character of God. And when you think of that, think of who you are because of the covenant that was made. People washed in the blood, cleansed by the blood, freed by the blood, forgiven by the blood, freed from hell by the blood, set, destined to an eternal heaven with God because of the blood. That's what it's all about. Amen. Amen.